1: isn't it? How when you're on retreat and it comes to the last day of the year, it's just another day. (laughs) Part of the schedule, you know? I don't know if some of you feel that, but it's not quite as dramatic. I mean, we'll try and make a little drama tonight (laughs) for you. It's great meeting you, uh, each of you, and hearing uh, what's happening in your practice uh, or um, just seeing it in the way you walk and move and eat and so on, Uh, the way you recover when you drop your utensils Mm -hmm. and so on. So uh, as I ended with yesterday, uh, when you sit, uh, when we're meditating, um, we're meditating with the mind of Buddha. Buddha when you sit. And when you eat, you're eating um, like a Buddha. That's why in Oriyaki we say that wrapped up in that cloth are the Buddha's bowls. It's not like they're like the Buddha's bowls. Those are the Buddha's bowls. And so um, we eat so mindful and um, with such decorum and dignity that um, these are the Buddha's bowls and we're the Buddha eating. And um, another thing I like about Oreoki, especially kind of nowadays, is it really screws up people's uh, definitions of mindfulness of eating. Because like mindful eating is a really big thing right now, and it's like it's really slow. <laughs> And it's like this idea that, like, if you go really slow, you're being mindful. (laughs) And, um, like, anybody who has roommates or children or hosts parties knows that, like, that's not realistic. (laughs) And uh, you can be mindful at different speeds and in different ways. And um, that's why I think that the people at the end of the table should always be the people without kids <laughs> so so that they can also practice what it's like to not be able to sit down for a meal <laughs> i thought of that at lunch <laughs> i was like next year <laughs> And not only are we practicing like Buddhas, as Buddhas, but also uh, we're seeing in other people's practice, no matter how perverted and messy and strange it might be, that they're also practicing to be awake, even if uh, their awakening isn't at first recognizable uh, to us. So I wanted to... uh, Unpack and share a uh, Koan, case number two, from the uh, Blue Cliff record. The Blue Cliff record is uh um, primarily used in the Soto Zen tradition and was a favorite of uh Dogen. I think Dogen took like something like a hundred, a hundred maybe? No, maybe forty of those koans and used them so. If anyone's ever interested in kind of looking more at koan collections, uh, the Blue Cliff Record is a really great place to start because uh, in the practice that we do, it's very influenced by Dogen. And so because you might hear me talk about Dogen a lot, if you go into the Blue Cliff Record, you'll be like, oh, that's where Dogen got that. Zhao Zhu, teaching the assembly... Said, the great way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. As soon as words are spoken, this is picking and choosing. This is clarity. This old fellow, talking about himself, does not abide within clarity. Do you still hang on to anything or not? I'm going to read that part again. I'll read it 50 times this mm-hmm. afternoon. Zia Zhu, teaching the assembly, said, the great way is not difficult. Some of you are already like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> 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 this is so difficult. He's saying the great way is not difficult, just avoid... Picking and choosing. Just avoid picking and choosing. As soon as words are spoken, there's picking and choosing. This is clarity. Right? So he's saying like this, what I'm describing, this not picking and choosing, this is clarity. And then he goes on though. This old fellow does not abide within clarity do you still hang on to anything or not? Then, right away, a student put up their hand and asked, since you don't abide within clarity, what do you hang on to? Like, since you don't abide within this calmness, then what do you abide in? And Xiao Zhu replied, I don't know either.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> then the students really persistent. And the student says, since you don't know, teacher, why do you still say that you don't abide within clarity? He, he pushed it a bit, right? Because the, the teacher said, this is clarity, but I don't abide in clarity. And, and now the student's saying, well... If you don't really know, then how can you say you don't abide in clarity? And then Zhao Zhu says, well, that, that's enough. Just bow and leave. <laughs> <laughs> just, just bow and withdraw. So, please sit comfortably. This is a very subtle uh, Zen story. Most uh, Zen stories that we hear are kind of flashy and loud um, or have like these clever turns. And this one's like a little bit more um, subtle. And it's partly subtle because uh, the student's really pressing the teacher and the teacher's really pressing the student. So first this line, which I love so much. The great way is not difficult. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Just avoid picking and choosing. And this is a quote from a poem called A Trust or Faith in the Heart by the Third Great Ancestor. This would be the the third ancestor, means the third teacher in the line from Bodhidharma. So Bodhidharma, Huike, and then now we have this, this teaching. And the poem goes like, the beginning of the poem, the first four lines go like this The Great Way is not difficult, it just avoids picking and choosing. Just don't grasp or reject, and everything will be clear. So you can tell the the point that the, the poem is making here, which is very clear in meditation, which is that if you grab on to anything, if you grab on to anything, or you push away anything, or you reject anything, it sticks to you. You try to dig your nails into something, or somebody, or a situation, and it, you get stuck in it. It sticks to you. Or you try to get out of a situation. Um, you try to get out of your thoughts or make them go away, and they start really sticking to you. Have you noticed this? Like, If you want your thoughts to stop, then they really start sticking. And a thousand things are constantly trying to fill this clear space. A thousand uh, passions arise. A thousand uh, fantasies arise. A thousand uh, delusions arise. And if you don't act on them, they just self-liberate. They just liberate themselves. Like leaving money on the street. You put a $5 bill on the street, it will liberate itself. (laughs) That's why I love that part of the bodhisattva vow. Um, Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. I sometimes feel like when we chant that part of the chant, it should be more gospel Like when we say delusions are an exalted, people should be like, Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we could do this tomorrow. People could go like, oh yeah. (laughs) Delusions fall away means something that was suddenly so important was so important. It was so real and you were so passionate about it, which really means it was stuck to you, um, suddenly is not important. It's not even a good idea anymore. And then we also start to notice that sometimes when we're really in fantasy mode, it also brings a kind of desperation that actually saps the energy we need that I talked about yesterday, for really meeting what's really going on for us. Because I think most of us know by now that a lot of our fantasies are convenient ways of not being present with our experience. And this is the core teaching of Buddhist psychology, which is how much suffering is created by grasping and rejecting. And what's also being said here is that this is built into language. That we have lang- internal language that says, I like this, I don't like this. And in a way, isn't that what's distracting in meditation? It's just all these stories we have are about like, what we like and what we don't like. What we want more of and what we don't. Don't want any more of. The great way is not difficult. It just avoids picking and choosing. The sentence structure is so interesting. The it. So the it refers to the path. The great way is the path. So that means the path is us. We are this path, which is only a path. We feel our life as a path when we're not picking and choosing. The path is what we see when we avoid picking and choosing is another translation. The path is what we see when we avoid picking and choosing, avoid that habit of picking and choosing. And I think there's a nice natural kind of Taoist flavor to this. This teaching, a kind of organicness to this teaching, which is about following the, the water path. If water runs into a stone, it just makes its way around the stone, or it makes its way over the stone, or it makes its way under the stone. But the water itself is clear because water has no attachments. And that's why we put water on the altar. We keep water on the altar because water r- reminds us, if we remember to put the water on the altar, <laughs> that um, we can live in a way without so much grasping and so much clinging. So Zhao Zhu reminds us that as soon as we speak, there's grasping. <laughs> We have to speak, but as we do it, there's grasping. So we should see that. If we're clear, he says, we tend to hang on to the clarity. You've seen this? So the, the meditation practice, we're feeling our breathing. I'm going to talk about that more, but we're feeling our breath. Breath gets gentle. Mind starts to calm down. And every once in a while we're kind of almost losing track of our breath and there's this sense of a kind of a island of calmness. And then, once in a while, we'll hang on to it. Like, oh,
0: it's
1: really good, you know? <laughs> and we grasp onto the calmness. So what we're learning here is that the greatest method of meditation is not to hang on to any mental state. The old student doesn't the, the old student doesn't even hang on to that. The old teacher doesn't hang on to that. The teacher's saying, do you hang on to the sorry the student's saying, do you hang on to anything or not? So, in simple terms, Basically, what's being said is whatever comes up, don't hold on to it. Thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, just you can go home now. (laughs) But it's really, really hard because things stick to you, you stick to other people. And not sticking means not sticking to even clarity, not sticking to enlightenment not sticking to your ideas of awakening, not sticking to the need for freedom. And slowly seeing that enlightenment is just another state of mind. Delusion is just another state of mind. Melancholy is just another state of mind. And the problem with calm states is if you start clinging to them then you get really upset when they're not there. (laughs) So your job in meditating is sticking to the technique so that you can keep working the soil and working the field so you create the conditions for calm, the conditions for non-grasping. The conditions for peace embodied peace and then just to see what happens and what grows in the field and not to hold on to it too tightly not to hold on to it too tightly and I think that that's what the <coughs> teachers are trying to show here not holding on to anything Then something happens in the conversation where it seems like the teaching's kind, kind of finished. <coughs> and then the monk keeps pressing the teacher to explain his methodology. And the teacher is a little bit resistant, resistant to this. And I, I don't think that he's being clever or coy or something. I think when the teacher says, uh, just bow and withdraw, he's saying it because he doesn't know. Right? Like when you start kind of getting the hang of meditative practice, when other people try to ask you to share with them exactly how you get into those islands, you probably would end up saying, I don't really know. And if they kept pushing you, you'd say, okay, just bow now. And go away.
0: <laughs>
1: it's actually not bow and go away, it's just like, just bow and feel that and now go and practice that. Go and practice that. Sometimes during sitting practice, uh, students have what's called in the yoga tradition, uh, siddhi, or what's called in the Zen tradition, makyo, which is like uh, uh, visions or hallucinations or uh, sometimes auditory visions where they uh, hear really important uh, messages or they see uh, really important um, uh, meaningful signs. And because a lot of us are immersed in a kind of a Buddhist culture, a lot of times those signs appear through cultural language. And so we see the signs as um, uh, religious signs. They're not just signs. They're, they're, there's some culture in them. So we see the Buddha or we see like rays of light that we've heard about um, and we have these experiences and then we take them to the teacher because it's really important you take them to the teacher. And the teacher will usually say, um, cool, <laughs> there must be something wrong with your posture. <laughs> Maybe you're not sitting straight. <laughs> or if you, you know, hear really interesting um, mantras you know, in the forest, The teacher will say, well maybe you're kind of losing track of your your breathing. One time I had this experience and I took it to the teacher and they said to me, don't worry, it will go away. I was so upset. (laughs) You know how some of you, uh, when you come on a retreat, you get your interview at the beginning? So I had that. I had my interview at the beginning, and then I had this experience. And then I realized I wasn't going to get another interview. So I begged. and Actually, I knew the assistant to the teacher. So I'm like, you've got to get me another. (laughs) And then that was the answer I got. Don't worry, it will go away. (laughs) There's a famous story of a Zen master who was a hermit. He'd been practicing many years living in a very isolated cave. And one day he was making soup. And while he was making soup in the steam coming up from the soup, uh, Manjushri Bodhisattva appeared in the steam. And uh, then Manjushri rose up onto the ceiling and started teaching him the Dharma. Can you picture this? You're making soup. Out of the steam, Manjushri appears. I mean, this, I don't know if any of you have spent time in isolation, but this is not so far off. And um, Manjushri started teaching the Dharma to him. So the old hermit uh, went and took the ladle and started beating Manjushri, saying, Get out of here, get out of here. So that's our way. When we have these kind of (coughs) visions and these cool things that happen, we, we, we tell them to get out of here. We don't want to get attached to that stuff. So I always say this, but it's a reminder that if you are meditating or out in the woods or walking and you have anything happen to you that feels special, you're heading towards a dead end. Okay? And the dead end is whenever it, f- it feels special, that's okay. But when it feels special and then you feel special, <laughs> then there's attachment. Then there's clinging. Huh? And people who have a lot of those <coughs> feelings of specialness on retreat are the people who have the hardest time integrating back into daily life again because they're attached to the specialness but if we're practicing not special not special, not special, not special not special um, I have to remind myself of this today at breakfast time the grains of the salt the salt shaker I could see every grain and it was so beautiful and and I was like, okay, whoa. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> I was going to take out a ladle and smash the <laughs> And the basic idea is don't stick a head on top of the head you already have. You, you, something's arising. Don't add another egoic uh, um, jewel to the experience. Because that's not the intimacy of samadhi. It's not the intimacy of meditation. The intimacy of meditation is to be close to experience and to hold it tenderly, moment to moment to moment. Not too tight, not too loose. And to learn how to do that. and then you're free and playful and you have a better sense of humor there's a wonderful story about the Zen teacher Shinra Suzuki he was invited um, by a friend who was an artist to go to the Oakland uh, Museum of Art and um, When they went to the museum, one of the uh, pieces that was uh, housed at the museum was a beautiful densho, which is that bell we use um, that gets rung outside. Um, So Shinra Suzuki saw this bell from a Japanese temple and was really touched by it. So he went to the guard and said, uh, would it be okay if we rung the bell? And the guard said, "No, no, no! It, it belongs to the temple. I mean, it belongs to the art museum. It's, it's, it, it, you know, it's an art piece, and no one's allowed to touch it." So they tried to negotiate with the uh, security guard. You know, uh, is there a way maybe we could come back? And you know, and the person who was with Sh- Shunru Suzuki said, "You know." Um, he's a well-known Zen master. Maybe, like, we could come a little later at the end of the day and ring it and just hear what this this bell is. And the guard says, "No, it's not. It's not possible." So apparently, this is a true story. Apparently, what happened was um, later on in the day, after they had gone around and seen all the art, Shinra Suzuki was walking and accidentally bumped into it. <laughs> And then said, oh, what a beautiful, beautiful sound. (laughs) Can I tell you another Shinra Suzuki story? It's a good story about Shinra Suzuki uh, had someone who he taught with uh, quite a lot, named Katagiri Roshi, who ended up teaching in uh, uh, Minneapolis. (coughs) And uh, together they, they went to um, the San Francisco uh, Planetarium. Has anyone been there? It's an amazing place. I, just, I think that's the planetarium that was in the James Dean, James Rebel Without a Cause. It's not the same planetarium? Is LA, is that? Oh, okay, so this is San Francisco. Um, so anyways, the two of them were taken to the, the uh, planetarium and... Um, they got there, and Katagiri Roshi, you know, you lie back, and you see that. And Kategori Roshi was just totally amazed. And Shinra Suzuki fell asleep for the whole, the whole thing. And um, at the end, when they came out, um, they were asked how it was, and Katagiri Roshi said, Just wonderful and really interesting. And uh, Shinra Suzuki said... Um, Wonderful. <laughs> I always love that story. I feel like that one should be in the Zen tradition. Um, the Zen, uh, uh, the, the Zen Koan tradition. And what's funny and why do we all laugh at the same time? Because um, every moment we can be awake to. Sometimes we need sleep, we rest, it's okay. Some of you came on retreat expecting one thing and it didn't go the way you expected. And you came into meetings and are like, it's not going how I, you know. And some of you in the middle of saying that are like, oh, actually it's okay. (laughs) It's pretty good, actually. (laughs) then this section of the cone. since you do not abide within or live within clarity, what do you hang on to? Right? It's such a, it's a, it's an interesting twist, isn't it? Like, cause every teacher says clarity, you know, being free, so on. Once teacher say, well, I'm not, I don't hang on to that. That's not my thing. Well, then what's your thing? And Zhaozhu said, uh, I don't know either. And this is one of the very famous I don't know teachings of Zen. Very early I don't know teaching in the Zen literature. If you practice for a while and then you start asking questions like, what happens when I die? And the answer is, uh, I I don't know. That's okay. Or if you ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? And you start to kind of get this sense of, I don't know. I don't know who I am. What a relief. Mm -hmm. If you're in a relationship that's going through some changes and you ask yourself, where's this going? And you're able to honestly say, I don't know. And it's okay. Then it's okay. some of us it's hard to go through changes in our relationships because we're so fixated on what the outcome needs to be that we can't allow for much to change and then so we do a lot of picking and choosing and in so doing we shut down the depth of the transformation that's sometimes possible Around New Year's of, of 2009, I started to get a crush on somebody, that's a true story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I, I couldn't stop thinking about her. And, and she practiced in our Sangha. So I, I, uh, I said to my teacher, oh, I'm sorry, there's a part before. Is it okay if I tell you a love story? <laughs> I haven't asked if it's okay with my wife. But. <laughs> so, okay, so my son, my, my eldest son, who, who's 13 now, I took him... My father's an architect, and he was designing something. Uh, he was designing a, a part of the San Francisco airport, and he was living in San Francisco. And so we went to go visit him, because that was like a cool thing to go to San Francisco. And, and so... Um, I took my son at the time, and um, I'd been separated for a little while from, my, uh, his, from his mother, and um, then we went to this slide in this great playground, and he was complaining and complaining that every time he went down, it's, it's this cement, long cement slide, and you actually go on cardboard. I don't know if anyone's done this kind of thing, now, And he kept complaining that it was making his bum so itchy. So I said, like, pull your pants down. What's going on on your bum? And he had chicken pox. Oh. And the whole trip, we just had to stay in the hotel. Oh. And I had to nurse his chicken pox. Because like, you're not allowed to fly. You can't just fly home or whatever. You know? So anyways, finally on the day we went out. I'm telling such a long version of the story. <laughs> I hope this is okay. Indulge me, okay? Indulge me. Never told this story. Okay, so... Um, so anyways, on the day we went out, I walked into the store to get a card from my father to thank him for visiting because I felt kind of badly because we didn't spend any time with him. And, um, and I saw this really beautiful women's scarf. And I'm not like a big shopper person, but like, I love this gorgeous scarf. Mm-hmm. So I bought it because I thought it would be really good for this woman that I couldn't stop thinking about. And then I knew there was a problem. <laughs> so I, I called my teacher at the time, Norman Feldman. I'm like, I really have a crush on this girl. He said, okay, well, like, that's amazing. And it's so great that you met someone who practices the Dharma. So the first thing is, she's not allowed to practice at, the, at your Sangha anymore. Because um, this would be a problem. And also, you guys don't want to start a relationship with, like, you as the teacher. And, like, it's just too complicated. So, so no more, no more practicing together. And the second thing is, um, you have to tell everybody. And I really didn't like that, because I'm because it put a lot of pre- that's a lot of pressure on dating, to like everyone has to know, because what if it doesn't work out? Like that's that's not good. But anyways, that's what we did. We told people, and that wasn't very hard. And uh, and then we started dating. And then I realized, oh, oh, and on our first date, I made a list and I said, okay, if we're going to date, here are the things that, here are the rules, basically, okay? (laughs) First rule is no kids. I don't want to have kids ever again. So just so you know, and she's like, cool, I don't want to have kids. don't want to live together. Uh, I want to always have separate places to live. I travel a lot, and I want to travel on my own. (laughs) Um, And the last thing on the list was no holding hands in public. (laughs) And that was the one she didn't agree to. So anyways. Um, So then everything was going good. And then I started to have this feeling like, oh, this was... Like, I love this person so much... um, I think I might wanna have a family with this person again. And it really scared me, this thought. This was pretty unconscious though. So meanwhile, I had become really good friends with the barista at the coffee shop where I always go, who was a kind of well-known person in the queer community, a musician, and like didn't date men. And it was like perfectly safe. Um, She had a partner. Uh, actually, no, they just broke up. So then, I don't know what happened, but I said to Karina, I'm like, we, we can't continue anymore. I'm in love with this other person. And then Karina, like, flipped. She's like, what are you talking about? You know? So anyways, I stopped dating Karina, and I started dating the barista. She has a name, which I won't say. Anyways, I had to go teach in New York. We went to New York we were at um, the uh, Central Park and there's a pond in Central Park with turtles in it. Does anybody know that, that pond? And we were looking at the turtles and then I realized what the fuck have I done? <laughs> what have I caught myself into? I've like tortured Karina. Um, I'm really in, in love with her and now I'm with this queer woman who would like doesn't even really want to be with a man, but like, it's like, it's so complicated. And not only that, because she was like really involved in queer politics and like radical queer politics, her friends like hated me (laughs) because I was like exactly the thing, like pretty much everything I stood for, especially being a teacher, was like exactly the problematic thing that... uh, Anyways, it was kind of a mess. So finally, Karina and I got back together, and I don't know, somehow we've had kids. and (laughs) (laughs) And then I had to deal with this... I'm boiling right now. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I've dug myself down a hole I had to get out of. But then what I had to deal with in my relationship was the fact that um, at this critical time where this question was starting to open up in my own heart, I couldn't take it. Like my samskaras, my habits from like a terrible violent kind of breakup in the past kind of started haunting me, which is, oh no. I remember sometimes walking down the street at this time, seeing women pushing strollers and thinking it was one of the most depressing things. They must be so depressed. Like so much projection. And now I was projecting all of this onto the possibility of a future relationship. And sometimes it's really hard for us to hold these open-ended questions like, where's this thing going? And so we conclude too early by projecting onto people or onto situations what's going on. And a lot of the times we're totally wrong. We're totally wrong. And I went so far as to leave an amazing relationship, which like was a big risk. Because I knew it was going to open me up, you know. In therapy, we call a projection transference. You've heard this term before, transference. Actually, it's interesting because the word, so transference means to transfer. Something unconscious onto something, uh, onto an object, to make something into an object, to ob- objectify something. But the word is interesting because the, the two compounds, trans, the word trans comes from the Greek meta. And fur comes from the word for, P-H-O-R. So, transference is actually cre- the creation of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's, it's turning somebody into a metaphor. A metaphor being um, as if. Right? It's relating to someone as if they really are your last partner. As if they really are your father. As if they really are your sibling. And when we're projecting onto somebody, we're often so certain that it's the somebody. One of the key insights of Freud is that when you project or you have transference onto somebody, So this was the key insight with Freud, was that it wasn't just you were projecting something unconscious onto anybody. It was that the anybody you're projecting onto does have a little bit of a quality Mm -hmm. of something in you that you can't integrate. They're not just an anybody. It happens with someone who does have a little bit of that quality. And that's what constellates it but the other person might have no idea what's being constellated. So part of our practice when we're projecting a lot is to be able to own our projection and know what we're feeling separate from our analysis of the other person. And one of the best practices we have for that is sitting still and calming down and actually feeling what's going on in our hearts and in our bodies. So we know what we're feeling. And one way that you know what you're feeling is the sentences you have in yourself about what you're feeling don't have anything to do with the other person. They're just about what you're feeling. Not about what the other person's doing, or causing, or what they remind you of. Just about what you're feeling. And why that's so hard is because it's opening up to not knowing. To not knowing what will happen in the relationship. To not knowing a version of yourself that just has this raw feeling that's usually projected onto another person. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Back to the koan. That was just my riff on I don't know. Sorry, that was a little bit of a Since you don't know, teacher, why do you still say that you don't dwell within clarity. Why do you still say you don't dwell within clarity? I think it's good to know that Zhao Zhu was a really old man uh, at the time of this story. Um, I'm not sure uh, how old he was, but... um, He taught for 40 years and he started teaching when he was 80. (coughs) So this is some time in his teaching career. So he was older than anybody in this room by far. And some of his contemporaries were known for like loud shouts and screams and hitting with the stick. Uh, One of his contemporaries was known to uh, um, break out into dance In response to a question. (laughs) (laughs) But the teaching of Zhao Zhu is that he was always able, in his frailty even, to find a way to be steady and to meet his students. There's one story that he always taught. This was the tradition in China in a chair. And one day while he was giving the Dharma talk, the leg of the chair, because it had been so used, broke. So he had a student just grab a piece of firewood and tie it to the bottom of the chair. And the chair was never fixed the rest of his career. He just always had this piece of firewood tied up to the leg of his chair. Because he didn't want anyone to spend too much time carving a new leg. He just wanted them to keep meditating. And his teaching in meditation was open to the question, open to I don't know. Let I don't know come into your body. Let I don't know be the center of practice. Can you picture Shinra Suzuki banging into the bell? I don't know. <laughs> When you bump into an obstacle in your meditation practice, when you bump into a big wall in your relationships, it's the same thing. Just remember that the great way is not difficult. Just avoid picking and choosing. What's picking and choosing? Grasping and rejecting. Just keep staying with the process. Now I'm happily married, we have kids, we hold hands in public, we travel together. Um, Except, Karina always reminds me of how painful that time was. And we've all kind of been in these situations, right? We've abandoned somebody or we've abandoned ourselves or both because we weren't able to stay in the obstacle, and instead we went on grasping and rejecting. Right now, in the present moment, is where we avoid grasping and rejecting. Our practice is always here in the present moment. So be patient with yourself. Feel how these calm islands gather and then fall apart, because they do. All we really need is a sincerity, inner sincerity of the heart, to be able to just meet what's happening again and again and again. For a lot of you, this was a really, really good retreat. I'm surprised how many people have come in. Usually, there's a little more drama. But so many people have just said, what a blessing this time has been. Well, don't hold on to it. (laughs) Next time might be horror. (laughs) (laughs) And when you stop pushing things away and grasping, then you start to trust your own sincerity more. So don't be too concerned about what shows up on the path. Just keep walking and sitting and breathing. But in a very specific way. by coming back to our body. When you breathe, you start in the superficial body. So maybe some of you, it's your belly and you feel your breathing in your belly, which has to be relaxed if you're gonna feel it. Or maybe it's your nostrils. And when you start breathing, If you can't find your breath in your nostrils or your belly, take some deep breaths to start when you get on your cushion, like two or three deep breaths. You don't have to do that after fast walking, which is what's so nice about fast walking. But, you know, early in the morning, you sit on your cushion, maybe take some deep breaths. And then start really superficial, so maybe with the temperature of your breath. Feel how when you inhale it's cool? and when you exhale it's warm. Does everybody feel that? Yeah. And then notice subtle movements in the breath. Like notice how you don't have to go that deep in your nostrils to feel your breathing. In fact you can even feel the sensation of the breath just outside of your nostrils somewhere. This should be my profile. (laughs) Meditation instruction, online course.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: And then notice the subtle movement of the breath here. And then you can also explore where the breath like areas that the breath affects where there's not so much sensation. So one of the areas I like to really focus on as the breath gets softer is the roof of my mouth. When you inhale, the roof of the mouth drops. And when you exhale, the roof of the mouth lifts. So when you inhale, it's like, you know where the roof of your mouth is? right <laughs> here. Roof of your mouth. And when you exhale... Or did I just say that backwards? When you inhale, the roof of your mouth drops. And when you exhale, the roof of your mouth lifts. Can you feel that? Explore it. Check it out. So, skin, sensation, temperature... Roof of the mouth. When you inhale, your jaw expands. (laughs) When you exhale, and then um, take your awareness of your breathing away from your lungs and away from your diaphragm and and pull your awareness of breathing more cellularly. So just feel the kind of cellular sensation of breathing (coughs) rather than parts moving. Does that make sense? So your breath is getting softer and softer and softer so that your breathing is cellular and as your breathing uh, softens you want your awareness your perception of breathing to increase not the pressure of breathing so the pressure of the breath in your body is getting quieter this is more energetic, it's more cellular Uh, your, your awareness is increasing. Sometimes people mix this up, like they're used to their perception increasing the pressure and that always being the same thing. But you can actually let the pressure of breathing soften, but the perception of the breath become more vivid. Is that making sense? And when you do this, one of the things you stop doing is transference on the body, projecting onto your body. Or another way of saying this is you stop objectifying your body. You start to feel the experience of body. And that's why I always say, Somatic meditation, although someone just told me that that term was just taken by Reginald Ray. (laughs) So So that you start to feel a clarity and light in your joints, up through your spine. So that even though you're holding some tension in the muscles in your body, so that you can sit, The inner body, the central body, is really at ease and there's not much going on, just like basic rhythms, so quiet. And then your mind starts learning how to experience yourself internally without objectifying your body. Which is how most of us are relating to our body most of the time, especially people trained in body stuff, athletes, dancers, some kinds of dancers, etc. Where there's not that much internal proprioception because you're so highly trained in one way, right? Like usually athletes are like the unhealthiest specimens. (laughs) Because they're so highly trained in one way, they got really bad at human, (laughs) you know? And so their proprioception only moves in certain patterns. So you might wonder, why am I getting into all this? Because I just want to underline that these habits that we call habits of mind, aren't separate from habits of body, you see? So it's like, in meditation, although we're always told in the Buddhist magazines, working with your mind, working with your mind, in retreats like this, I hope you start to feel, oh, this is a physical practice. And when I work at the physical, cellular level of the breath, it totally changes the way my mind um, works. It's amazing. So, the great way is not difficult. Just avoid grasping and rejecting. And if you do this, that's clarity. And then, don't hold on to the clarity. And if anyone ever asks you, The method for how to do that then you just tell them the truth I don't know I don't know and also as you start to practice more and more you will start to have this I don't know enter you in a way where you can live with it and it helps you in situations rather than scares you So, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth, tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.